Hebrews 9, not 9 through 15, 11 through 15, rather. My goal is not to do an exposition of these verses, but just to set a concept before you. I know I feel like I've said that uh, too much lately. But hopefully you're receiving some benefit as we've sort of looked at all of these um, big theological themes. We would consider this uh, biblical theology, walking through practically, uh, looking at uh, um, the entirety of the scriptures every week from, from very high and learning about what God is doing or has done in redemption and is, is continuing to do. Hebrews 9 verses 11 to 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, please help us here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be gracious to us. We, we struggle. Our minds are, are very fickle, as it's been said. We, we struggle to think deeply on anything, let alone your word. So we need your help now. As much as ever. Teach us from the scriptures. I pray that your scriptures would speak, O oh Lord. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter makes reference to the time when he and James and John saw Christ transfigured he was brighter than the sun at that time Peter when he makes this reference he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty his greatness his dignity his power and nobility his grandeur his loftiness we might say all of his godness Shined. It was visibly manifested to these men. And when all of that was made visible to the natural eye, it was just blinding white light. Scripture tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. That He covers Himself with light as with a garment. That is to say, God finds his habitation in the midst of all of his greatness, all of his dignity and power and nobility, his loftiness, his glory, all of his perfections, all of his godness. That's where he lives. He dwells in unapproachableness. And so when you see in Scripture, or we, we do see in Scripture, that there's always something about this majesty that's forbidding. There's always that element of apprehensiveness, of terror, really, in the presence of this God. 
There's always the immediate realization when men are um, confronted with or by this God. Maybe they don't say it out loud, but there's always this, this realization. As if you were dressed for the weekend and you had to go somewhere, store, and you open the door and you realize that you've walked into the, uh, a board meeting of some of the chief executives of the, the company and they're all dressed in their suits and they're sitting at the desk and they look at you and you're wearing your, your Walmart clothes. There's this sense, this majestic one is unlike me and I'm unlike him and I shouldn't be here. There's always that that attribute of God that causes men in his presence to just want to pull the door back slowly and shut it quietly as if they had not been there because they realize this is not where I belong. In the presence of this God. Man is unholy. So you see man is creature. And so God's very being Unmediated, just the fact that he's God wards men away from him. It, it forces us out. And at the very same time, our creatureliness, the fact that he is creator and we are creature, that fact obligates us to obey him, to worship him. It's sort of like we're drawn to be near, to hear from Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, to receive our commands. And at the very same time, we're pushed away because we know we shouldn't be in His presence. Now, when we do obey Him, there's no obedience for that, re for that or there's no reward for that obedience. It's obligatory because of who God is and because of who we are. It's expected. It's assumed. It's necessitated. In other words, if you were to live your whole life in perfect obedience to God, to every one of His commands, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, until you breathe your last breath, you could lay no claim on any reward for that obedience. At that time, like is written in Luke 17, you could say, I'm just an unworthy servant. I have only done what was commanded. Your response would not be, where's my reward? It would be, what's my next command? There's no reward for our obedience to this God. Here's the good news. However, in His love, God desires more than that. According to His good pleasure, God has decided that He would he wants to reward men with His presence. With communion, not as servants, but as sons. And so, since we have no ground upon which to stand and say, Can I be in your presence? Can I have communion with you? I've, Lord, I've, I've done this. Can I, can I step up on it and be a little closer? We don't have that. And so God has to come down to us. He has to condescend. He comes down to our level and He makes with men covenants. So that... Upon completion of the terms of the covenant, we might be able to enter into a relationship that is beyond obligatory servitude. It's actually the relationship of sons. Now last week we looked at the end, and we looked at the beginning, and we looked at the middle, and we saw that God has actually given us two great pictures of that communion with Him. And we see all throughout the middle, the, the working of, of, of redemption in the scriptures. And even now, God is, has set before our eyes pictures of this dwelling so that men, the people of God, will always be pressing into and pursuing after that, that sweet communion, that eternal state with, with God. But again, we've not earned that. Whatever God is doing, it's not because we've earned it. It's not because He said, look how cute, I want to cuddle those people. Yeah. It's the opposite. He looks upon us with, with, with anger upon the wicked every day. He hates all evildoers, all wicked. He is, is Himself repulsed by all of our sin. And yet in His love, He, he comes down. He makes covenants with men. In order to take us from where we were at this part of the book and bring us to where he would have us at this part of the book. He's, he's made these covenants to bring us to himself. 
And so today, the lens that we're going to look at is, is the covenantal lens. The covenantal lens. And uh, by way of just a, a stated axiom, here's the, the truth I'm, I'm trying to get across to you that I hope you'll see. Today, I'm going to quote from Nehemiah Cox, probably the chief uh, editor of our confession. Quote, the holy and wise God has always dealt with the children of men in a way of covenant. End quote. That's what I want to get you to see. I want you to perhaps not fully understand it. Some of the men have seen my, my, my drawings this week as I have tried to fully understand it. But I just want you to come to that conclusion, that, that understanding. The holy and wise God has always dealt with the children of men in a way of covenant. We see the Bible, when we read the scriptures, we see it as a history of God's dealing with men and through a series of covenant relationships. And so when you're reading the Bible, it's important to know which covenant is in view. If you get the covenant wrong, then you're going to get everything wrong. So Christ is the center of all divine revelation. The church is the eternal plan of God for global proclamation. Human history is the record of the hands-on dealing of God to bring about His decreed end. And God is doing that and has always been doing that by way of covenant. Now, as a disclaimer, this is not going to be an exhaustive treatment of, of Baptist covenant theology. And, second disclaimer, I know and realize that this series has had us engaging the scriptures far more than we're used to as far as just looking at scripture references and the size of those references and today is not going to be any different. We're going to look at a lot of scripture. We're going to look at big chunks of scripture and to help out with that I've not even made slides for most of them. If you can turn quick enough to get to them that's fine. If not, at least I would encourage you jot down the references. Be intentional with your ears. Just listen as I read. And even throughout the time, pray that God would help you to engage the gray matter between your ears. In here. That's, it's, not, it's not going to be natural. Theology is work for us. Yeah. There, there's going to be no reward to the lazy man who just wants um, the, the, the words to just come out and splash his face. So, And also, go back and listen. We have a website um, for this very purpose. Um, it's not... We don't advertise that stuff much. It's for you guys. So go back and listen to this, this stuff to help you. The holy and wise God has always dealt with the children of men in a way of covenant. Let me give you a definition of covenant. I'm going to quote Nehemiah Cox again, and this will actually be on the screen. We'll leave it up for a few minutes as I give an exegesis of covenant. Here it is. Quote, a declaration of God's sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits He will bestow on men, the communion they will have with Him, and the way and means by which this will be enjoyed by them. End quote. A declaration of God's sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits He will bestow on men, the communion they will have with Him, and the way and means by which he, this will be enjoyed by them. Now let me open that up. It will stay up there. You can read it. I'm going to open that up a little bit. A covenant. When we talk about covenant in, in, the, con, in the context of covenant theology, you go to the law firm down here somewhere and you say, define to me a, a covenant, an agreement. Uh, um, they're going to have a different definition. What we're talking about is covenant theology. And this type of covenant, a biblical covenant, is a declaration of God's sovereign pleasure. A covenant in Scripture is not God attempting to bargain with men while we sit on the other side of the table and haggle with Him until we can kind of come to an agreement. That's not a biblical covenant. It is a declaration of God's sovereign pleasure. God says, I will do this. It's not according to anything foreseen in us. It's not so that God can receive some benefit from us. It is God's sovereign pleasure that is the foundation of his covenants. He says, this is what I'm going to do. Amen. Now the matter of these covenants is the benefits 
that he will bestow on men and the communion they will have with him. A declaration of God's sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits he will bestow on men and the communion they will have with him. In these covenants, the biblical covenants, God is the benefactor and we are the beneficiaries. We're not giving him anything. He doesn't earn anything. He doesn't receive anything from us. He gives. We benefit. And communion with God is the great end of all of His covenant dealings. That's the great benefit. Communion with God. God's plan as summed up in Christ is that we would dwell with Him forever. A declaration of God's sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits He will bestow on men, the communion they will have with Him, and the way and means, we might say terms and conditions, by which this, that would be the benefits, the communion, by which this will be enjoyed by them, by men. The conditions are laid out by God, and the conditions are then met by men in order to receive the benefits promised. Now, using this covenantal framework, God remains sovereign overall. God establishes the conditions that are to be met. God maintains this holy distinction between the Creator and the creature. And, out of His good pleasure, we receive eternal communion upon completion of the covenant terms. When the terms are met, we get the benefits and communion with God. So let's look first at what is called the covenant of redemption. And what I want to do is just walk through some of the biblical covenants. This is not, again, not an exhaustive study of our particular Baptist covenant theology, but it is just a study just to show you this in Scripture. So first, the covenant of redemption. And here again, we are reminded of the good news that God's covenant dealings with man do not start with man. They start with God. Like all of the blessings of God to men, God's interactions with us find their roots buried in the soil of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. God is who He is, and as the goodness of God comes out of who He is, we receive the benefits. His covenant transactions to men flow out of His own covenant transaction within the persons or between the persons of the Godhead. This is the covenant of redemption. Some of you might have heard this question before. What is the covenant of grace? It is the agreement God the Father made with Christ concerning His elect people to save them from their sins. That's how I know how far you, are, you all are along in the children's catechism. What is the covenant of grace? It is the agreement God the Father made with Christ concerning His elect people to save them from their sins. Now notice the two parties in that covenant. God the Father... And Christ, the Son. In that catechism question, it's referred to as the covenant of grace. Generally, it's called the covenant of redemption. And I'll explain why the terms are sometimes synonymous are sometimes synonymous in a minute. The covenant of redemption is the agreement God the Father made with Christ concerning His elect people to save them from their sins. To be more specific, the covenant of redemption is the covenant made between the Father and the Son. The Father having chosen to save a people. The Son agreeing to undertake all of the work of their, their salvation necessary in order to bring them to the Father. And this covenant was made in eternity. The covenant of redemption is made in eternity, God the Father and God the Son agreeing to redeem a people. Amen. Now the question is, is this concept in Scripture? Some would argue that it's not. We believe that it is. I just want to walk through some passages of Scripture. And here, remember that we are entering, we are venturing into eternity past. The covenant of redemption is in eternity past. And we're venturing into literally the Holy of Holies in eternity. Where the, the, the three persons of the Godhead dwelt in, in unmitigated delight and perfection within God. And the scriptures give us just some clues about what was happening in the plan of redemption. Based on several facts. First we know that Jesus came and died for sinners according to the plan 
of God. There was a plan. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, we read this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Jesus died on the cross for sinners according to the plan of God. We also know that God the Father anointed Jesus, His Son, to this priestly task. In Acts chapter 4, the saints are gathered in prayer, and they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant. Remember that word, servant. We're going to come back to that. Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners according to the plan of God. God the Father called Him and anointed Him for that specific task to fulfill the role in that plan. We also know that no one takes upon himself the anointing of God to any office. Hebrews 5 verses 4 and 5. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, and here he quotes from Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. There is the father's appointment of the son to this task. When he said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Christ was appointed he was appointed by the Father, you are my son. And he was appointed by the Father in eternity. Today I have begotten you. We know that the son is eternally begotten of the Father. And so when he says today I have begotten you, that doesn't mean that he birthed him out of his loins. But that in eternity past, the Father chose the son and anointed him and appointed him for a task. To be the high priest of his people. Well, we could go further and, and say that the specific anointment in time would have been the pouring out of the Spirit on Christ at His baptism. But we know that in eternity, Christ was appointed to the task of high priest for His people. The Father also, in eternity, laid out the specific benefits of this covenant. Hebrews quoted from Psalm 2, so we can look at Psalm 2. We now have warrant from the author to the Hebrews, probably Paul or someone writing a sermon of Paul. We have warrant by an infallible interpreter of Scripture that that Psalm 2, that, that song, that was about the calling of the Son and the appointing of the Son to His ministry. So then we can go to Psalm 2 and read what it says in verses 7 and 8. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. So there, the Father is speaking to the Son, and the Son is giving us a, a, a little overview of the conversation. Speaking from the perspective of the Son. The Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, Son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So here's this conversation between the Father and the Son. Here are the covenant blessings. The nation, the nations as your heritage. The ends of the earth as your possession. The Father says to the Son, just ask. Just ask and they're yours. Just say the word, Son, and they're yours. This is the conversation. Now, now you can turn here because this is, this is a, a rather lengthy section. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 40, 49 verses 1 to 6. This is what seems to be, what I believe to be a more detailed account of that same conversation. The psalmist sort of sums it up. Here uh, the servant of the Lord gives a more detailed account of that same conversation. Beginning partway through verse 1 it says, The Lord said to me, or the Lord called me from the womb rather, from the body of my mother, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. 
He made me a polished arrow in, the, in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Remember that from Acts chapter 4. The Lord's servant. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So the Father has here called and prepared and commissioned the servant, the Son of God, to act on behalf of Israel. He, he gives him this name Israel because the Son is the true and greater Israel of God. He's the, the full embodiment of everything that Israel was to be as the Son of God, the firstborn Son of God. Christ the Son is that. So he says, you're my servant Israel. He gives him this name, Israel. And it's almost like the Son responds. Here's the Son's way of asking. Remember, ask of me and I will make the nations. Well, the Son doesn't just come right out and say it. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The servant of the Lord responds in so many terms or so many words. Oh, Father, the salvation of that little nation is such a small thing for me. But... If that's what you would have me to do, if that's, if that's what you would call me to do, I will do it because ultimately, Father, my reward is you. To be forever in your presence, my recompense is with my God. It doesn't matter. I'll do whatever you say to do, Father. And so then the Father returns. He responds. The Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring back Jacob, to bring Jacob back to Him, that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, here's the Father's response, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. In other words, the Father, if you can picture the conversation, the Father knew in his, in his mind the whole time what he was going to do, but he just wanted to lay it out there. For the Son, just ask. If you'll just ask, I'll make the nations. And the Son said, you know, Father, I'll do whatever you'd have me to do. I mean, Israel does seem like a very small and insignificant nation. And he says, you're right. They are too small. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And the ends of the earth, I'll make you a light to the nations. I'm glad you brought it up, son. <laughs> Good idea. In Isaiah 42, 6, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And the Son obviously agrees to the terms. Hebrews 10, 7, I have come to do your will, O God. This is the attitude of Christ in, in all of His dealings with the Father. I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Whatever you say to do, I'll do it. Yes. And that's a quote from Psalm 40 and verse 8. So the Son agrees to the terms. The Father then gives to the Son those who are chosen in eternity to be redeemed in time. We know that God chose us in Him that is in Christ before the foundation of the world. And listen to how our Lord speaks when He's on earth. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, you can picture again the son sort of bragging on his, on his father in the midst of these antagonists. My father who has given them to me, he's greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Christ says He gives eternal life to the sheep that the Father had already given to Him. All that the Father has given to Him. And the Father and the Son are one in this covenant of redemption. This is not a statement so much of the unity of the, the, the Trinity, Father and the Son, but unity of purpose and mission. We are one. You can't take one of these because they belong to me and they belong to my Father and He's greater than all. You don't want to mess with my Father. You can't get my people. John 6, 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I came down to, on a mission. I was, there was a purpose for me to come here. I came to do the will of my Father. This is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ will raise up unto eternal life all of those that the Father had given Him in eternity. Christ redeems sinners back to where we began. 
with his blood, what the author to the Hebrews calls the blood of the eternal covenant. One thing we're trying to institute in our household to teach our kids that they don't tell us what they're going to do. They ask us what they may do. So instead of, I'm going outside, they come and say, or they ask, may I go outside? Now, most often the answer is, please, <laughs> go for it. It doesn't matter. Go play, please. The point is that they learn to ask. They learn, my job as a child is to ask my parents what I'm going to do, not tell them what I'm going to do. Well, the, the Son of God never had to learn that lesson. From all eternity, He didn't just say, Hey, Father, I'm going to go redeem some people. I'm going to go save some people. I'll be back in, in a few years. No, they entered into an eternal covenant together. They agreed together to save a specific people. And we call that the covenant of redemption. The promise given to us before the ages began. The grace given to us in Christ Jesus before times eternal. It's the covenant of redemption made outside of time in eternity between the Father and the Son to save some people. Okay, that brings us then secondly to the covenant of grace. In the Catechism, the covenant of grace is the name given to the definition of the covenant of redemption. Why? When you read some other men, they will say that these covenants are practically the same or synonymous. That's because the covenant of grace is the application or the working out of the covenant of redemption in time. That's the covenant of grace. So we could say the covenant of grace is the covenant made between God the Father and Christ, along with the people of Christ, to give to them the blessings of the covenant of redemption, namely, eternal communion with God, under this condition that Christ must undertake to act as mediator and fulfill all of the terms of this covenant on behalf of His people. Amen. That's the covenant of grace. It would not be gracious if God said, here's my covenant and here's what you need to do. It's called the covenant of grace because the Son takes upon himself the work of mediating for us, on behalf of us. The covenant of grace is also known as the new covenant. So when you read in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere, the new covenant, the new covenant, that's the covenant of grace. And oftentimes, the language of the covenant of grace will sound very uh, similar to or almost the same as the covenant of redemption. Because they're... Practically the same thing, we might say. I don't know if practically is the right word, but covenant of redemption is eternity. Covenant of grace is the same thing, but in time applied. The classic text for the covenant of grace is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. God speaking through Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming. This is future, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here are the, co here are the, the covenant blessings. I will put my law within them. And I write it on their hearts. One time I wrote it on stone. Now I'm going to write it on their hearts. It will be inside them, written on their very newly created nature. It will be the governing and decisive factor in their decision making. I'll write it on their hearts. That's one of the blessings of the new covenant. Amen. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Intimate, exclusive relationship. This God goes with this people. These people go with this God. They are together. No longer shall each one say to his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. There's another blessing of the new covenant. Every person in the new covenant knows God intimately, has a relationship with God. Every person in the new covenant is what we would call a Christian, a saint, a born-again believer. Here's how we know that. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. That's another blessing of the new covenant. Iniquity is forgiven. We saw last week, lifted off. These are all the members of the new covenant. Their iniquities have been lifted off of them and laid upon the sin bearer, the covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus. 
And God says, I will remember their sin no more. Again, not the same thing as I will forget. I choose to remember them no more. Again, this this prophesied by Jeremiah to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then later he says, the house of Israel. In the New Testament, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is... This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So there Christ confirms His covenant with His disciples. As we would see a a seed of the the New Testament church. We also read that in 1 Corinthians 11 every week. Uh, The the church in Corinth, not a um, uh, merely a remnant of Judaism. If you're looking for a a good and yet not too long treatment of that language... House of Israel, House of Judah, House of Israel, and how all that points to the Christian church. I recommend A.W. Pink's uh, Divine Covenants. Because he covers that, not too long, quick, does a good job, and you say, well done. So this is the new covenant. Now this is very important. This is, these are things that separate us from our Presbyterian brothers. When was the covenant of grace ratified? We saw in Hebrews... The reference to the blood of the eternal covenant. Covenant of redemption, oftentimes synonymous with the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace, the outworking of the covenant of redemption in time. When was the blood of that covenant or those covenants shed in time? It was when Christ died on the cross. The blood of the eternal covenant is the blood of the new covenant. Is the the thing when we drink the fruit of the vine and we read that the Lord says, This is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant was ratified at the death of Christ. When he died, the new covenant was ratified. Hebrews 8, 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. There, Christ mediates a covenant, and it is better Than the old covenant. Notice he does not say it is the same as the old covenant. Or it is an administration of the old covenant. It is better than it. It's not the same thing. Verse 13 of the same chapter. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Again, I'm just pointing out there is a new covenant and there is an old covenant. They're not the same thing. We'll look at the old covenant in a minute. The covenant of grace was ratified, or the new covenant was ratified when Christ died. It is not the old covenant. And the new covenant, or the covenant of grace, is the only salvific covenant. The only salvific covenant. We'll look at others in a minute. None of them are salvific. The new covenant is the only salvific covenant. So we might ask then, If the covenant of grace was not ratified until Christ shed His blood, and that covenant is the only salvific covenant, then how could anybody prior to that be saved? The answer is because Christ's blood was sufficient to reach back in time and forward in time because it was the blood of the eternal covenant. Hebrews 9.15, A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In the first covenant, within that specific covenant, there was nothing to redeem them from their sins. Anything that would redeem them from their sins was in another covenant that had not been ratified yet, but, but whose graces were applicable by the Spirit of God in those times. That's just a long way of saying any time in the human history or the history of redemption, anyone has ever been saved... It's because they placed their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ to atone for their sins. Now, did they know the name Jesus? Most of them did not. But they knew a Messiah is coming who will shed his blood for my sins. And that's where my hope is. So Christ's once for all sacrifice not only atones for those under the old covenant, but those who now live in the covenant of grace. Now, that was very quick. But you see... There's this covenantal framework in the scriptures. Just in, in those two primary covenants that, that are overarching all of scripture. And the covenant of redemption made between Father and the Son to save and elect people. The covenant of grace in time, Father, Son, and the Son's people to save them from their sins. 
The covenant of grace spans all of redemptive history while not actually being ratified until the death of Christ. Those are the two overarching covenants of God's dealings with man. So now, as a third heading, let's look at covenants of type and shadow. Covenants of type and shadow. This has not been purely chronologically, technically, because there are other covenants in the Scriptures between those two, we might say, between their ratification anyway. Covenants of type and shadow. Every other divine covenant that God has made with men contains within it promises or foreshadowings or a progressive revelation of the covenant of grace. They are not the covenant of grace. They are not administrations of the covenant of grace. But they do point to and progressively reveal the covenant of grace until it is officially sealed in the blood of Christ. We might call them sub-covenants. We'll walk through these. There, there are five that I've, I've listed. And as you read through these, remember, Christ is the center of all divine revelation. And the church is the eternal plan of God for global proclamation. That God has always had the end in mind. And so when God works in the beginning, He's working with an end in mind. First, then the covenant of works. The covenant of works is a covenant made between God and Adam as the federal head of all humanity. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There's the covenant. God declared. He doesn't say, Adam, what do you think about this? I've got an idea. I'm going to put a tree over there. And uh, you're not going to eat from it. And if you do eat from it, then you'll die. What do you think? That's not what happened. God says, Adam, this is what I'm doing. There's the tree. Don't touch it. You eat, you die. What's implied except that if you don't eat, you will live. And Hosea 6, 4 says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They're speaking of Israel. But giving us that language of covenant. You see, like I began, Adam owed God obedience and allegiance by creation. Adam had God's law etched on his being. God made man upright, but he has devised many schemes. Adam was upright. Adam had the law of God written on his very being. He was made in the image of God. And so what we would consider the moral law, the Ten Commandments, they were etched on Adam's heart and mind, and he was to obey them. And that was obligatory. Just do it. But then God comes along and He adds what we would call a positive law. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. It's got no inherent legal uh, value other than God said don't eat it. It's not that it's eternally sinful for people to eat from certain trees. This was just the rule God gave. There's that tree. You're not allowed to eat from that tree. It was not a natural law. It was not a moral law. It was just a test, we might say. This is the great test of humanity's virtue. A perfect being in perfect circumstances, having every need already fully met, no sinful inclinations or surroundings at all. One rule. And what did he do? He transgressed. He broke it. He sinned. Now what does that teach us? How does that point us to the covenant of grace? God shows us from the very beginning that man, even in his pre-fall condition cannot be good enough to earn salvation. We might all think, well, I I think I could have done it. No, you couldn't. Adam was far more righteous than any of us. Created that way. No sin nature. But he was mutable. And so he fell. Following that, God makes the promise that would foreshadow the covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there we get the first glimpse of the the mediator of a better covenant. The seed of the woman, he will be a man and he will crush the head of the serpent. That's the covenant of works. Then we come to the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant was made between God and Noah. We could say God and Noah as a federal head of all creation. In Genesis 9, beginning in verse 8, 
We read, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Noah starts afresh with a new creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. God says, I'll never again destroy the earth by flood. Just prior to that in Genesis 8, we read that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice of clean animals, before God ever said to Moses what was clean and unclean, Noah knew what was clean and unclean. He makes a sacrifice. It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the Lord says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Even after the flood, the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And how does that point us to the new covenant? Again, it shows us even if God were to come and to bring worldwide destruction and wipe out everyone except for the most righteous man on earth and his family, when it was all said and done, he would still say, the intentions of man, man's heart is evil from his youth. Though he rid the earth of everyone but you, the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is evidence that sin is not out there. It's here. Kill everybody. If God could find the most righteous man on earth at this very moment and wipe out everybody but him in one generation, they would be wicked. Because sin isn't here. Noah's there. His sons are there. His family's present. Righteous Noah, who'd just been redeemed, and God said, it looks at what is left. And he says... The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so now, we're still waiting on the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the devil. Now he's got to to come from Noah's family because that's all that's left. And now he has to accomplish a work that will change a man's entire nature. If the intentions of man's heart are evil from his youth, then man's got to have a new heart. So now we're waiting on that. Then we come to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant made between God and Abraham. We could say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 12, 1-3, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Remember the new covenant says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Abrahamic covenant says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll establish my covenant with you and your offspring. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this is very important. In Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul interprets this covenant for us. He says, speaking of Abram, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That is, the father of all who believe who are Gentiles. Abraham is the father of all who believe who are Gentiles. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And... To make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also work in the foot, walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham before he was circumcised. That would, that's a long way of saying Abraham is the father of Gentiles who are Christians and Jews who are also Christians, who walk in the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings. Referring to many, 
but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. The promises were made to Christ. When were these promises made to Christ? In eternity. When were they applied? When God began to lay them out in time with men. God's covenant promises to Abraham are far more important than we give them credit. Those who are Christ's are Abraham's offspring, not Moses' offspring or Judah's offspring, but Abraham's offspring. And so God added to Abraham, or His promise to Abraham is added to what He promised in Eden. Now we're waiting on the seed of the woman who would destroy the devil from the family of Noah who would accomplish a work to change man's entire nature, to change his heart, who would be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now this promise we see has to be received by faith like Abraham's. That brings us to the Mosaic Covenant or some call it the Sinaitic Sinaitic Covenant, the covenant made at Sinai between God... And Moses as a representative of the physical offspring of Jacob, some of whom were also the spiritual offspring of Abraham. In Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8, he, this will be Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This covenant, the Mosaic covenant, says, If you do this, I will do this. If you don't, I will curse. We read about that in when we, when we have the people divided on the, the mountaintops, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the covenant blessings and the covenant curses. If you obey, I will give all of these blessings. But if you disobey, I will give all of these curses. Now at that point we ask the question, if God had already made a covenant of works with Adam, and Adam sinned, proving that man could not keep a covenant of works, why would God come and make another covenant of works with a law attached to it, knowing man can't keep it? If Adam would have kept his covenant, he would have obtained life. This covenant's not that way. Nowhere in the Mosaic Covenant does he ever say, if you obey these things, you'll have eternal life. It's similar to the covenant with Adam, but it's for different purposes. This covenant is not salvific. It was made only with the nation of Israel, only for a specific purpose. You might ask, why then the law? And Paul would say, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. And who is that offspring? He already said it's Christ. The law came, the covenant of law came because of transgressions and lasted only up until the time Christ came. You see, God was working through this nation, the offspring of Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to bring a Messiah into the world. But we've already seen that uh, with Adam, we've already seen men have no hope. Even the best of men cannot earn salvation. Even the best of conditions, men will sin. We saw that with Noah, even the most righteous of men are evil by nature. Because of transgressions then, God gives the law... To curb wickedness, to restrain the wickedness of this nation, to preserve it just long enough to get Christ to the earth. It was only for that nation. It lasted only until Christ came. And it was not salvific. Now that's important when we get to Matthew 24 and God is destroying Israel. How could he do that? Did he not make a covenant with these people? Sure he did. And they broke it. So he comes in judgment. That covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is the old covenant. In Hebrews, when you read of the old covenant, it's the Mosaic covenant. Then there is the Davidic covenant. Made between God and David as king of God's people. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Psalm 89 verses 34 and 35. God says, I will not violate my covenant 
or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. So God's covenant with David was that there would be a man from David's line on David's throne forever. And so now we're waiting on the seed of the woman who would destroy the devil from Noah's family, from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of Judah, who would also be a king who would do a work that would change man's entire nature. All of this points us to the Lord Jesus as the mediator of the covenant of grace. It's all looking at that covenant. The blessings of the new covenant. Let me just read you a, call this a bonus text here. It's out of line, out of order, but this is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, 24 to 27. Around 200 years after David dies. God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he says, My servant David shall be king over them. They shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What is that except Ezekiel's version of Revelation 21 and 22? The dwelling place of God was with man. Christ, the true and greater David, will rule as king forever. And God's dwelling will be with His people forever. He will be their God and they shall be His people. All of that accomplished according to the work of Christ as He fulfills the covenant of redemption made with His Father. God has always dealt with men by way of covenant. Now if I had to give you a statement of doctrine for all of this, it would be this. And I'm going to quote Nehemiah Cox one more time. God has purposed no lower end to His covenant transactions with men than to bring them into a blessed state in the eternal enjoyment of Himself. That's God's purpose. I'm going to take those people, I'm going to bring them to me, and I'm going to let them enjoy me forever. That's His method. Covenants. He makes a covenant. So then by way of application, number one, read the Bible this way. This is the goal of this little series is to develop, get these hermeneutical lenses in place so that we can understand the Scriptures. And so now as you read, pay attention to the covenant language. Pay attention to who is being addressed and ask, what covenant were they in at that time? What were the stipulations of that covenant? What were the promises of that covenant? Pay attention to past, present, and future positions in redemptive history. When God says to, through Jeremiah, um, Behold, the days are coming. I will make a, a covenant, a new covenant. Well, we know that he's not talking about the past. He's talking about something in the future. So read the scriptures this way. When God deals with Noah, he does so having already dealt with Adam in the garden. Having already made the promise of the coming one in the garden. When God deals with Abraham, He does so having already dealt with Adam and Noah. When God deals with Moses, He does so having already made a covenant with Abraham. So you read this way. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.17, The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God made a covenant with Abraham. Then He comes to make a covenant with the people of Israel. Well, that doesn't make that one go away. And so when I'm reading in the Scriptures, do this and live, don't do this and die on the plains of Moab, I know God's not referring to the promises He made with Abraham. He's not referring to me. Those promises were fulfilled in Christ's doing and our receiving. You see, this is... Sometimes we wonder if there's a special copy of the Scriptures 
passed out at certain bookstores that doesn't have books like Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, that lays this stuff out because Paul knew it was a problem for the people of his day. He knew the Jews of his day would struggle with, wait a second, our father Moses gave us this, our father Abraham this, and Paul answers all of these things in the New Testament, explains them. So read the Bible this way and, 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 and perhaps study even more. One of these days we'll go through more detail of, of covenant theology. Second application, this is, I want to get more spiritual here. Think about how strong a comfort there is in your salvation. You see, I, I would not or cannot conceive how anybody would take comfort in a salvation. Someone who believes that Christ just came and lived and died in order to fill up this proverbial bucket of salvation tokens that everybody just, you just go and grab one if you want to. You feel like it, go get a token. Make sure you hold on to it real well. There's no comfort in that. Because I, I want to know, what, what, what if I went to the wrong bucket? What if I got the wrong token? What if I drop it somewhere? There's no, there's no comfort in that. But I can take comfort in a salvation that's rooted in the pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian covenant of redemption. I can take comfort in that. Because I know the Father would have to fail at loving God the Son for me to lose my salvation. The son would have to fail in his duty to his father if one sinner is lost. The spirit would fail at his duty at applying the work of Christ if he misses one elect sinner. If he loses one. In essence, we could say God will cease to be God at the very moment your salvation is in, in danger of being annulled. That's, that's comforting. Amen. I can take comfort in a salvation where I know that every step has been providentially planned and worked out by God. Amen. God's working with the first Adam was on the basis of the completed work of the second Adam. That's why God could come and, and cover them. God received Noah's sacrifice not because it smelled good, but because Christ's sacrifice had already made it lovely in His nostrils. God's deliverance from, of Israel from Egypt points to our deliverance from sin. Over and over and over, God is working moment by moment in every moment of history, pointing men to His Son and the salvation provided by His Son in accordance with the divine covenants. That's comforting to me. Yeah. I want to know God's doing it all. Right. He's working everything to save me and to keep me, not because of anything foreseen in me, but because of His good pleasure. I can take comfort in a salvation knowing that the terms of the covenant of grace have been met on both sides by God. God the Father and God the Son agreed to it. God the Son fulfilled the terms on behalf of His people. Again, the old covenant would say, you do this, you keep doing it, and you'll stay in the land. The new covenant says, I want to tell you what Christ has done so that you can inherit the earth. It's already done. And we receive the benefits. There's comfort in that. We talk about meeting the conditions of the covenant. Upon meeting the conditions, we get the benefits. Christ has met the conditions. You sit and contemplate, meditate on these divine covenants. That brings comfort to the soul. When you begin to wonder, what a, you know, how, how could a believer sin like I've sinned? So on and so forth. There's comfort here. And lastly, be sure that Christ is the object of your faith. See, if you get the covenant wrong, you might be looking at some stipulations and conditions that were not given to you to get the benefits. This is where we have to, we have to honestly examine ourselves. Paul says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. We know... But the covenant of grace is the only salvific covenant. So if you're in the covenant of grace, you receive all of the blessings of eternal life and communion with God. We know that the covenant of grace was, was promised by God and fulfilled in Christ. So if you're in the covenant, it's not because of your own doing. It's because of the gift of God. 
All of the other covenants point to the covenant of grace, and so therefore they also point to Christ. And so Christ has always been the object of saving faith for the people of God. No one in the Mosaic covenant was saved because they obeyed the law. They saved because they had the faith of their father Abraham. So is the Lord Jesus Christ the object of your faith? Are you trusting Him? Holding on to Him. Receiving all that is in Him. Notice that we don't ever ask, are you trusting in your faith? Or do you have enough faith? Dig down deep inside of you and and see if you're believing hard enough. Because that's not what the Scripture gives us. The Lord says that the faith of a mustard seed will do. Why? Because it's in a mighty Savior. We cling to the, the Savior. I'm not asking if you're believing really hard that when you stand before God on Judgment Day that you, you're pretty sure He's going to deal well with you because you know He's nice. Are you hoping really hard that you'll get to heaven instead of hell? That's not saving faith. I'm not asking have you earned it? That's the wrong covenant. Are you looking unto Jesus as the sole ground and source of your salvation? It's all Him. I'm clinging to Him. Paul would say, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. The Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is for members of... Of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper. We look back and we remember what Christ done. For us. Meeting all of the terms of the covenant. We look forward to the day when we will partake of the fruit of the vine. With Him in His kingdom. We receive grace upon grace. To cling to Him more tightly. We eat and we drink and we're reminded our faith lies in Christ. He sealed the covenant. We can, we can even drink and hear the words spoken from Him to our own hearts as we drink. Yeah. This is the new covenant in my blood. Only Christ has met the terms of the covenant, not us. So take two minutes and think on these things and then we'll, we'll do that. We'll come to the table.